This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 136 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest today is O'Shea Bowens. He's CEO of Null Hat Security and SOC Manager for Toast, a Boston-area firm where he focuses on threat hunting, incident response, SOC operations, and cloud computing. He shares his early beginnings as a teenage hacker learning the ropes, his career path, and why he believes it's important to be a role model, a mentor, and to have a presence in the security community. Stay with us. I essentially was introduced to, in reality, I guess you could say it was hacking, but no one really called it security. It was like maybe 97 or 98. I was around 13. Uh, I was taking a computer class in, uh, actually, I was, yeah, I was 12 or 13. I think it was a summer I was training 13. But either way, I was taking a computer class at, our, at the uh, local school. And as I was uh, transitioning into the summer, a friend of mine, uh, like actually like my best friend, his mom had bought the movie Hackers for him, and we went to his house and watched it that night. And then I was kind of like obsessed with that movie, like ridiculously mm-hmm. obsessed. So I, I literally went to like home like the next night, and I was in like AOL chat rooms and you know typing in like what's a hacker or what is what is hacking. And then you get pushed right. to all these other chat rooms, and then you kind of go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> but I, of course, at that age, you don't really totally understand the technical concepts. At least I didn't. Like I right. could do a, a light bit of programming, but. The thing that had me, the area of security that kind of grabbed my interest was really was networking. I didn't, I wanted to understand like how the actual internet worked. It was just kind of just, it was like mind boggling to me that I could communicate with someone in like Mexico or wherever else in the world, like all these other weird places inside of these chat rooms. And then, you know, you start just kind of asking questions and that's kind of led me to where I am today. I still just ask questions. Well, uh, can you give us some some perspective on what was the state of things when when that interest in you was sparked? I mean, what uh, what what types of computers were you using, and how did you go about accessing the internet? Uh, it was still a modem dial up, so this was before. I think this was like I want to say it was like a Windows ninety five. Yeah, I think it was Windows ninety five. It was still dial up. The landscape, from my understanding of it, it seemed. I mean, I guess in reality, if I, if I take like a reflective approach. It seemed like things were just like wild open, like wide open at that time. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I got kind of introduced to Sub Seven around that time, uh, around around like middle school, I guess. It was like Sub Seven, I think, like going into high school, and that was like the first like rat that I had ever like touched. And it seemed like you know you could populate, you know, you could create these weird binaries and kind of just throw them into chat rooms, and people would download it and click on it. Like there was no like filtering. There was no kind of like limiting or content filtering. Like it was kind of just like whatever goes. Like it was a weird, when I look back now, I was like, you totally shouldn't have been allowed to do that. Like you can't like (laughs) dump. It was just like a, it was like a, it was, I guess security was like an afterthought in a lot of products, which isn't totally different from today. Right. But today is a bit more stingy with, you know, repercussions that are like financially motivated. What led you to, to stay on that path to, to being on the good side of things rather than, uh, venturing off into places where perhaps you shouldn't have i think it was more like a it was probably like a fear motivation thing of like Mm. i had like my dad was like incarcerated at one point in time so i kind of remember like going to visit him like when he was incarcerated so i was like all right i don't want to do that like i never want to be in that position 
yeah. uh, but also you know you, you're you're like you're a teenager right so your 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 compass is like morally shifted towards kind of how you feel that day like i do remember times <laughs> like you know i'd wake up and like i didn't i wasn't necessarily receiving all of my news from uh, the television, like a lot of my news came from other like websites uh, that actually published news across the country and then like across the world. Right. And there were times like I used to be really obsessed with like the rainforest. And, you know, I had this fear when I was younger that if something happens to the rainforest, we're all going to magically suffocate, which in some <laughs> ways isn't too distant from reality. Like we don't have the rainforest. We don't have enough like clean oxygen and photosynthesis and all that stuff. But so when they were like when I'd read about like, you know, companies that were like destroying pieces of the rainforest, I'd get like crazy upset. And then there'd be, you know, you're you're in these you're in these chat rooms online, and someone's like, "Hey, I'm going to try to hack this construction company," and they're like, "You're like, yeah, do it, do it." You know, you're not thinking clearly because you're like 14 or 15 years old, right? Yeah, <laughs> you want to see what happens. Yeah, and then now you're like, well, that's probably not the smartest thing in the world, right? Like right. they're just kind of like guys <laughs> that need a job that are just kind of following instructions, right? Like they're kind of just like me and you, except for their job is just partially destroying part of the planet. But mm-hmm. you you begin you get this context, like you be, you begin to gain like more of a a context around like okay is it really you being upset with that own organization or like their goals or is it you know the people that are carrying out the orders and it can't be the people because those are just like people that are like working a job you know uh so i, I think I, I kind of had that in the back of my head especially with like the dad being in jail thing like i always thought like okay if you get caught you know they're definitely gonna throw you in jail because this was like the mid 90s going into 2000 and then mm-hmm. people were definitely going to jail at that, at that time and period so you know that kind of always stuck with me now, in terms of, of you entering the professional workplace to do this, this becoming, you know, something that you could do to to earn a living, I mean, how did that uh, transition happen for you? When when did you see that that, that being a real opportunity and, and something you wanted to pursue? Like, I left school. I went to school originally for fashion design. I thought I was actually done with, uh, in general, like, technology. For for some reason, I don't know why, but I thought I wanted, I just felt like I, not I thought, I definitely believed I wanted to do something else. And I had this interest in fashion, just kind of being creative and mm-hmm. someone wearing your creativity. Like, that's still, like, a fascination to me. You can come up with this idea of, like, clothing and other people agree with it by totally just, like, wearing it. So it's like they're walking around wearing your ideas. Like, that was just, like, really cool to me. The introduction to the, to my first professional role uh, I believe I was working at a telecoms, uh, tele- telecommunications company in Dallas, Texas. That's where I'm from. Uh, I was working in uh, in networking, actually. Uh, I began to kind of realize that more people were finding jobs in security. So this was maybe like 2007, 2008-ish, I guess. Uh, because one, you know, DEF CON had begun, become, become to be, get a bit more popular. And I was meeting people at the 2600 uh, the 2600 kind of meetup that was happening in Dallas. It was like a few, it wasn't, well, I, I don't I haven't lived in Dallas in a while, but I know like, you know, the security scene is blown up there. But but at the time there wasn't a lot of security stuff happening on the scene. There were a small group of individuals from like 2600 that were there. But some of those people actually had jobs. And I just thought that was cool. I was like, oh, wait, you're actually getting paid to like, you know, perform like intrusion analysis or some people were getting paid right. to, you know, different areas of security. Uh, so as I was working in networking, I lasted like a, maybe a year. Not, I shouldn't say I lasted as if I like couldn't take it, it, but I knew I wanted to move into security. So I worked in networking for about a year or so or a year and a half, maybe until I could find like the first security job, which is actually at a rival telecommunications company. Well, and, and so where are you these days? What is your day to day like? What are the things that you're focusing on? Uh, it's madness, honestly. <laughs> um, I'd say during the day, you know, I, so I'm at Toast uh, here in Boston. We're like a, a point of sale terminal company uh, for restaurants, and we're you know we're kicking butt. 
So my primary job there is the first person. I'm the first person to take a stab at building out the SOCs, the Security Operations Center at Toast. Uh, and the challenge, it's a good challenge, but the challenge here is really thinking about how do you operationalize application security. So you're not you're not digging into the weeds of uh, you know explicit code reviews uh, and bug fixes and bug bounties. Like we have one or two individuals that are great at that, but it's really understanding how you apply you know, those traditional models of, you know, detect response and monitor into your application. So if you can identify that, okay, this is definitely like an SQL attempt because we were alerted upon it. Well, what, how can we play, how can we create more countermeasures, not necessarily within the, on the, on the code side, but also from like a layer three and level set, layer seven perspective. So we're definitely, identi- so we receive responses in real time to help us, you know, foster up our defenses. And that's kind of the challenging area right now. So it's really, you know, the operational operationalizing of application security, uh, a bit of cloud security and container security, which is a whole new area to me. Uh, so that's really, you know, applying those other three uh, tiers of defense into, you know, uh, your microservices or your, or your micro containers uh, within AWS, specifically for us with AWS. What are some of the specific challenges that you face in the hospitality industry? I mean, you, there's one side of it, you know, you want to, you have to protect, you know, the customer, right? You want to ensure that there is no interruption of traffic from, uh, you know, from an in- encrypted point of sales terminal into back into our environment. Uh, but I'd say one of the biggest things is like, you know, at times you don't control their network. So hmm. you can sell, you know, like us, uh, you know, we, we can provide the tablets and, and of course you can opt in and we can actually uh, set up a network for you. Uh, that we can help monitor and we can help uh, kind of alert to, uh, you know, kind of weird activity, not as an MSP, but really more of a, you know, we have a certain product for uh, routing and switching and we can place that inside of your environment. But at times, you know, if you can't really understand what's happening in their environment from like a networking perspective, like that's a massive, that's a massive challenge because, you know, it's not too far fetched to think that, you know, if an attacker wants to learn more about the terminals that they can't gain direct access to them, well, maybe they can hop on the network and if they can hop on the network, and they can begin to kind of uh, monitor or sniff traffic uh, that's occurring, you know, then maybe they can start to determine, you know, working backwards, well, what's the best way to actually gain access to the physical device, for that, whether it be the terminal, and then, then what can I go do from there, right? Like, so it's always mm-hmm. like w- limiting what they can learn, which is impossible, but when you don't have an eyeball into what an attacker possibly has an eyeball in, like, that's, an, that's a, you know, that's a problem. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it uh, you know it reminds me of that old saying about how um, you know no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. That you know you can you can do all the planning you want, but when you place those terminals out there in restaurants, um, that's a that's an interesting environment all in its own. Yeah, it, it's it's a fun challenge. Like that was one of the big reasons I I took on the task. Like I thought of I not well I still think this, but like I, what I what I envision for. <laughs> Not, when I when I think about the future of like security over the next like four to like seven years or maybe five to ten years, I think a lot of it's there's a couple of different areas. One, you know, the cloud side, and I think everyone's starting to catch on to that now. But also, you know, with cloud, more individuals are building out these microservices and these containers. So really, how do you detect and defend with that in place, right? And that's and most likely that's critical to your application, which is critical to your business. And then the other side of it really is, you know, how do you begin to create slower times or uh, slower null periods between, you know, like threat hunting engagements and monitoring and detection across those two, uh, those two mediums I I just mentioned uh, beforehand. 
And it's a weird area because there's not a lot of companies that are like totally focused on this, you know, and so that's what I envision. I mean, that's what I, when I state, you know, operationalizing application security, that's what all that encompasses. And it's, it's, it's super challenging. Like I said, there's not, not too many people that have this kind of mapped out. There is no, you know, O'Reilly book on how to tackle this. <laughs> you know, I, I know something that's important to you is being a mentor and, and helping uh, other people find their place in the industry. Can you share with us, I mean, wh- why is that important for you? Why, is, why do you want to spend your time doing that? Just from a human perspective, right? Like if you think about like growth in different areas of like what, what we become from like, I don't know, from inventions and industrial era to all these other different areas, that we, all these things that we've created, it's typically built upon like learning from the next person. So ex, ne- every the next revolutionary change is built upon like a prior brick and mortar, not necessarily brick and mortar, but a prior, a prior brick and mortar type of idea. And I think it's the same thing in like security. I think it's easy to go down this rabbit hole of, well, should I, do I need to know pen testing? <laughs> do I need to know reverse engineering? Do I need to be solid in uh, a solid developer? Like I have a deep programming background or, or do I need to understand like uh, network security? Like there's so many different areas of security that when you're starting out, I feel like you can be pulled in just a crazy direction where you're not as focused, number one, but also, you know, having someone that you can kind of look to or really that can provide guidance is key in helping someone else establish like their future and build it upon their foundation. And I feel like if you can help someone do that, like it's kind of like your duty in a sense. Like if you look mm-hmm. at like, you know, the whole going back to like, you know, old school kind of hacker manifesto, it doesn't matter like who they are or like what they look like or, you know, but it's like we're in this together. So why would you not, you know, help out the next person? I, I want to get your perspective on threat intelligence. Um, how, how do you think, uh, threat intelligence should be integrated into an organization. What's what's your take on proper use of it? I'd say the first step is ensure that it's applicable to your environment. I've been in environments before where there was a decent amount of budgeting set aside for for threat intel, and you know there's more than one vendor actually inside the environment, and they're just pumping all of this information into uh, the security team. But no one was was properly vetting this. So if it's a bunch of information on Linux exploits or a bunch of information for attack vectors that aren't necessarily relevant to our line of business, you can you know you can toss that to the side. Not you know toss it to the side, but you can start limiting that that type of information out. I think learning how to vet is one of the one of the first steps of, and it, and it, this goes into like building blocks of, of different areas of your security program also, right? So if you can properly vet the intelligence that you're receiving. So that properly vetting is ensuring that it's, it's, it's Intel that's relevant to your tech stack, your, uh, your, your vector of business, and you actually can notify uh, and work with whether you have a security engineering team or whether that's totally internal, you can leverage that type of data to, to, to help bolster your uh, security posture. That's a great use of having Intel in place, right? Like I, I kind of like, I simplify it as like, can I actually use it to become better at defense? All right, if it doesn't help me like attribute to our defensive posture from a either monitoring or creating countermeasures or signatures, uh, you know, it's not as valuable, right? And if you take that type, you take that line of thinking and you apply it to you know what's kind of hot in security right now with um, like threat hunting, right? Like I always like I travel and I speak at different conferences, mostly around like incident response and threat hunting. And, I'm st- and as I'm learning more on the cloud and container side, I'm sure that'll come that'll come out the wash too. But one of the things I always kind of emphasize upon, like after I speak and or when I receive questions around 
building out you know, a thread hunting program, I always say, well, if you don't have Intel, it's kind of hard to build out thread hunting because you, you, it's hard to determine what you're actually searching for. You can, of course, you can leverage like Attack Miter and, and look at those techniques, but you need relevant data that's pertinent to your environment. And that's where, you know, having vetted intelligence is key. Do you have any interesting stories to share when it comes to threat hunting? So there's like kind of two different buckets that I, I actually, yeah, I'd say two different buckets that I, I kind of place threat hunting or I'm using air quotes here, the idea of threat hunting into, and that's kind of successful or unsuccessful. And then I've done a lot more unsuccessful than I have successful. That's just, you know, blunt honesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of the unsuccessful is emotional reactions. Like you are in this position of, okay, we have, maybe you have a SIM or you have whatever your IDS is. And, you know, this particular alert of interest triggers, you know, it states maybe it's, you know, it, maybe it looks like it's ransomware. Maybe it looks like some new variant of malware and everyone kind of like freaks out. Uh, so you go into, you move yourself into this, okay, we need to hunt for this, right? In reality, it's more just like analysis, but you're like, we need to hunt. And so you're, you're trying to like carve out, you know, these I, IOCs or TTPs from scratch or really at an ad hoc perspective without any planning, like that's one side of it, right? So this emotional side that drives this trigger reaction to start just combing through your environment based upon like an alert from, you know, whatever uh, solution you may have in place. I can say that I can say that because I've done it. <laughs> so these are all things that like I've actually done. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm not too proud to admit the mistakes. And the other side is really totally reliant on really on that solution for hunting, right? Like ideally when I think about like, a solid threat hunt is like you should have multiple sources of data that aren't totally related to security only. So when I say security only, it's not just your firewall logs, your EDR solution or your AV logs. It's really understanding do you have, you know, your proxy logs in place? Do you have VPN logs in place? Are you pulling down uh, an adequate amount of syslogs or do you have the correct level of Windows events that you're ingesting, right? Like those are the areas where you begin to find benign activity. Uh, if you think about the whole concept of threat hunting, you're looking for something that's gone undetected. If it's gone undetected, likely it's not in your AV and SIM solution logs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And because I've done that. <laughs> so uh, it's like, you know, you learn, you start to learn from your mistakes. And when I think about something that's successful, it's really taking the time to sit down and really plan it out, right? Like, so you're planning about, and you're think, you're constantly thinking about one, well, how can our Intel vendor help us, right? Is there something there that we can leverage that's been ingested or can we put a request in to whoever that vendor may be for just a bit of guidance? The other side is actually, you know, sitting down and when you formulate this hypothesis, you're, you're mapping out different data sources that you believe are pertinent to this, right? Uh, so if you have Windows event logs, do you have those 542s? Do you have uh, uh, logs that can help you support the notion of lateral movement that's occurring across the environment? And then like, are you classifying that data? Like how relevant is that data to your particular hunt? So you're looking at, you're taking this like 4,000 foot view or 3,000 foot view of what, what, like what data is available in the environment, how you can leverage it, how you can leverage your intel, and then you plan out the hunt, right? And that's not something that happens in, you know, in my experience, I can only speak for myself, but that's not something that happens in like a four, like a two hour time span. That's usually a couple hours or a day or two of just like mapping that out, planning it creating stories for this like I, i've i've started to learn over the last year or so I, you know with my when i engage in threat hunting inside of an environment you know i want to have some type of epic or story behind it so i can detail the steps i took the amount of time it took me to reach those goals and build upon that like with each engagement it's interesting to me how 
Um, it sounds like you have gained uh, as much uh, wisdom and uh, good experience from the failures as the successes. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> it's like, honestly, you, like, you fell, uh, n- not in life in general. I don't know, maybe maybe it is, but at least with in certain areas of security and specifically threat hunting, like you definitely, I felt like I, you, most people, me included, but I think a lot of people fail more than they succeed. Well, whether they're willing to admit that is another story. But, you know, if you have, you know, 80% success rate with your threat hunting, something tells you that's not like actually threat hunting. I know something that's important to you is uh, supporting diversity in cybersecurity and, and efforts there. Uh, what sort of things uh, do you do for that aspect of the industry? Uh, one of the things I kind of identified first is really having a presence of, you know, in I say a presence, but it's really a presence amongst like the security community. So if you like, I think we've all been on, you know, different IRC channels, like for portions, I, I, I'm 36, right? So I've, there's a couple different IRC channels I've been on like for over a decade. And mm. half of these people I've never met in my life, <laughs> probably more than half, actually. But one of the things I noticed when I would attend like conferences or what and, you know, different conferences or meetups was like, you know, go, even going back to like 2600, like when I was in like a teenager, it's like there weren't a lot of people that looked like me. And I didn't place much thought uh, thought upon that as a teenager. It wasn't until I started to move into like the professional realm where it became a bit more uh, a bit more ev- evident that like, you know there weren't a lot of African Americans in cybersecurity. And as I started to begin to like, go to more conferences, it became way more evident, right? And one of the things mm-hmm. I thought of was like, well, just from a representation side, maybe that's a place to start. You know, like just start speaking and putting yourself out there, and maybe when more people see that, that can help encourage others to kind of maybe submit to CFPs and and attempt to like share their knowledge. But one of the things I stated earlier was like I started like a podcast with a buddy of mine, uh, Doug, uh, Doug Bryan Jr., who's over in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And we wanted to start a security podcast. And I just thought it was like this really awesome idea and powerful idea to have, you know, like a podcast that there's like two African-Americans in cybersecurity, like dissecting these deep issues. Right. And that and that kind of highlights to another side of the representation aspect of like, okay, knowing that there's other people kind of like you that exist and, you know, they, there, there are different mediums where you can connect and, and share ideas. Uh, and that was actually another reason I wanted to mentor too. Like I didn't, I've never necessarily had like a mentor mentor when I was like fairly younger. So mm-hmm. like help, help, helping someone else kind of navigate the field and helping encourage other, you know, people of color in cyber. I feel like that's, just like an important mission. Like if I can, I don't know what the success meter is for this, but I feel like mm-hmm. the more people I can, I can reach, maybe the better I'm doing or, you know, the more, of a, the more of an impact I can actually have. When you go to conferences, when you speak at conferences, is your sense that over time uh, things are getting better? Most definitely. Yeah. I, I would say even between like the last like two years, like I've seen like more, minorities uh more people of color specifically like more women that are speaking and i just think that's that's awesome because like if you again going back to you know no the hacker manifesto it's all inclusive right it doesn't matter like what you look like so it's really okay how do we reflect that in reality and that's you know that's a challenge i don't have the answer for it i just feel like the more i'm out there hopefully the more i can encourage other individuals to kind of like step up and kind of step out and kind of let their voice be heard also Our thanks to O'Shea Bowens for joining us. 
Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.